It may perhaps be uh, worth noting that in my own case in Belgium, which is also in a number of other countries, my department of education is part of a faculty of psychology and educational sciences, so it's not an independent uh, unit. And that is, well, uh, luckily in, the, in a number of American uh, places not the case, maybe not the case in the UK, but in a number of other countries that is the case. And that uh, has uh, rather uh, interesting, within quotes, uh, consequences for uh, the educational field and for educational research. So it's, it's from that background that I'm talking to these, will be talking about these problems. So let me start. There is a new hype in educational research. It's called educational neuroscience, or even neuroeducation and neuroethics. There are numerous publications, special journals, and an abundance of research projects, together with the advertisement of many positions at renowned centers uh, worldwide. Cambridge, uh, London, uh, and so many other uh, places. Harvard. An interesting starting point to see the gist of what is argued for is offered by a number of position papers published in a special issue of one of the philosophy of education journals. Recently, that is 2011, it's uh, in educational philosophy and theory. Incidentally, the contributors are not philosophers of education, but researchers working in the area of neuroscience. The guest editors identify as a common aim of educational neuroscience, and I quote, to produce results that ultimately improve teaching and learning in theory and in practice. I hasten to add that the articles are full of warnings. For example, not to misapply science to education, that filling the gulf between current science and direct classroom application is premature, and insists not to exaggerate what this area could mean for education, thus to work in close collaboration with. Yet almost all are also expressing the hope and the confidence that a lot may be expected from this, called by some, emerging subdiscipline. Here are some typical quotes to illustrate that. And let me refer to the first quote on your handout. The holy grail for a transdisciplinary educational neuroscience, as I see it, would be to empower learners through the volitional application of minds to consciously perceive and alter their own brain processes into states more conducive to various aspects of learning. And um, a further quote, the question is, not whether there are connections between minds and brains. There clearly are. The evidence is insurmountable and growing. The question then is to what extent, subject to intrinsic theoretical and practical limits of measurement and analysis, can we identify changes in mental states as changes in brain and brain behavior, and vice versa. So let me focus your attention to the use of these concepts, brain and brain behavior. Working in the area of mathematics education, Stephen Campbell, who has a particular interest in the nature of mathematics anxiety and mathematical concept formation, for example, in ways in which the former impedes the latter, outlines that he has in his educational neuroscience laboratory, the Engrammatron Laboratory, Faculty of Education at Simon Fraser University, equipment to record, and let me 
refer now to quotation number three, EEGs, EKGs, EOGs, EMGs, which pertain to brain activity, heart rate, eye movement, and muscle movement, etc., etc. And the quote ends with, these data sets can then be integrated and synchronized for coding, analysis, and interpretation, thereby affording comprehensive observations and insights into the learning process. According to Campbell, quote number four, the main challenge has been to muster evidence and rationale, and now comes a very important part, I think, to justify this initiative to funding agencies traditionally supporting educational research. In the same issue, Harvard Jones refers to an OECD brain and learning project and to the UK's Neuroeducational Research Network at the University of Bristol. He argues in favor of a multi-perspective approach and refers, for instance, to work with NET's fMRI study of creat creativity fostering strategies. Quote number five, the imaging study, which included a focus on the biological correlates of creativity, was useful in revealing how those parts of the brain associated with creative effort in a storytelling task were further activated when unrelated stimulus words had to be included. Results provided some helpful indication at the biological level of action of the likely effectiveness of such strategies in the longer term. And I use another quote in, from the same issue, this time by Ferrari, who says, unlike cognitive neuroscience, which aims to explain how the mind is embodied, educational neuroscience necessarily incorporates values that reflect the kind of citizen and the kind of society we aspire to create. As I said, the papers are full of warnings. For example, Ansari, Koch and de Smet writes, quote number seven, close inspection of these claims for a direct connection between particular brain-based tools and teaching approaches reveals very loose and often factually incorrect links. The direct application of neuroscience findings to the classroom has not been particularly fruitful. Nevertheless, they remain, they too remain believers when they, when they identify, for example, as a topic for research, and again I quote number eight, how might non-invasive neuroimaging methods be used to measure the relative success of educational approaches? So far, some quotations of the field. Eh? There are people who believe, there are people who raise warnings. Uh, but the, the, uh, the, the gist of the thing is, of course, that we are uh, assured that a lot can be expected from the research in that particular field. Let me offer now a few characterizations of what is envisaged. Some of these studies offer support for what is known, and they grant that, they say that, that exactly that is the case. So for instance, if you look at quotation number nine towards the end of that um, particular quotation, teachers have long suspected geek rights that IQ tests, although predictive of academic success, do not reveal all there is about a child's cognitive potential. Our findings in supporting conjectures that the brain might develop separate working memory systems for general intelligence and fluid cognition offer an explanation of such skepticism. But others do different things. Um, they try to identify particular 
behavior, for example, intelligent behavior, and then relate that to brain activity. Let me give an example of that as well. Lee and Anne report on investigations in their laboratory concerning heuristics commonly used, for example, to teach algebraic word problems, respectively the model method and symbolic algebra. And you will see towards the end of quotation number 10 that they say, both methods activate similar brain areas, but symbolic algebra imposes more demands on attentional resources. If symbolic algebra is indeed more demanding on attentional resources, one curricular implication is that it is best to teach the model method at the primary level and leave symbolic algebra until students are more cognitively matured." End quotation. And another example you will find in number 11. The last sentence reads, at present there is no scientific data available on the relationship between language acquisition, both for the first and second, and brain maturation. So you see, again, a kind of warning. But in a number of other quotations, something else is happening, and I would like to label that, do standard educational research, but use it under a different label, call it neuroscience, and try to bolster your own case by invoking the concept science. There are, for example, the cohort studies on language acquisition, brain development, and language education by Hajiwara from Tokyo University. Although their objectives to propose a guideline for second language learning and education, especially for English, including the optimal ages and conditions surrounding it, is very interesting, they phrase this as a cognitive neuroscience-based guideline. And then finally, there is the advice you almost find everywhere to bring frameworks together to bring the neuroscience framework together with one or other kind of educational uh, research framework. So for instance, quotation number 12 by Van Ness, again in that issue, they write, the driving force behind bridging mathematics education and neuroscience in this project is the prospect of combining knowledge from both research trajectories to contribute to early diagnostic practice and prevention. And in a similar voice, and I'm now at quotation 13, you'll find that Tomerdal, not anymore in that issue, but uh, in a separate publication, argues, and I'm reading just the final part of the last sentence, it is almost certain that aggregations of findings from several studies mediated through higher levels, culminating in the behavioral and educational levels, will indeed provide new teaching methodologies. She presents a model, uh, I'm not going to read that, but you'll find it in quotation 14, where five different levels are distinguished. And uh, though she is not saying that uh, one is, has, is, uh, uh, could be a, reductive, a reductionism of another level, uh, it has all the characteristics of that, I think. So let me end with one of uh, her quotations in the same paper. We're now at quotation 15, where she says, the separation between the terms brain and mind could perhaps more appropriately be seen as different perspectives of the same thing. 
Much like the famous figure ground images where a viewer can see either an old lady with a large nose or a young woman's profile. Another example in the line of these kind of so combining different frameworks approaches is quotation 16. Again, I will only read the last sentence. A dissociation was shown to exist which also allowed the researchers to postulate that linguistic systems were likely to be mediating the precise calculations while visual centers were implicated in the approximations. And there are other examples. For instance, 17, where uh, Hardeman says, interdisciplinary collaboration has yielded considerable educationally relevant information about learning mechanisms that could not have been acquired solely through behavioral methods. So let me end with uh, a final example of what uh, these colleagues envisage. I would label this the sky is the limit. And again, I will only read the final sentence of that particular quotation. This model, somatic appraisal model of effect, identifies quintessential functions, components, and facets of effect necessary to provide a new research domain, namely educational neuroscience, with a basis on which to build a dynamic model of effect serving to challenge current pedagogy and inform and build a new praxis called neuropedagogy. I hope I have established the case about the rhetoric that is offered here. So thus far, I've only presented you with a number of what I found to be interesting sentences, what these people think they're doing and what, they, what the, the field could, the emerging subfield could deliver for educational research. But unfortunately, some comments need to be made and I will start with those now. First, there are various methods that are used in this particular area. Huh? So there is a PET scan which is basically a radioactive isotope injected, which allows to amount to allows the amount of glucose being metabolized in the brain to become visible. There is an fMRI which measures the blood flow in the brain, and that provides an image of the working brain. There are EEGs which show cortical activity of the cortex in the form of electrical signals directly harvested from groups of thousands of neurons through electrodes placed on the scalp. And finally, there are so-called MEGs, which measure the magnetic field outside the brain caused by electrical activity. Now, all of these methods are, of course, indirect measures of brain activity, right? They offer correlates. The studies are correlational. It is often assumed that, for instance, fMRI techniques offer visual proof of brain activity, but that is not the case. And uh, I have a quotation which is quite long to prove that people who are doing this kind of research who admit that that is certainly not the case. It's a quotation from Narvaz and Vajdic, uh, very well-known scholars in this field. Uh, again, I will read, this is not on your handout, I will read just the final sentence. Moreover, correlative approaches such as human brain imaging and psychophysiology are not sufficiently robust to educate what is, for example, basic about basic emotions because our 
autonomic physiology is regulated by generalized sympathetic and parasympathetic controls, which are not measurable through fMRI. Activation can vary, therefore, for a range of reasons. So it's, I, I think, very important to, to realize that uh, although the impression uh, in the newspapers and in, very, in the popular distribution of these research results is that there is objective proof of brain activity. That is not the case for none of the methods that are actually used. So they, those two are particular ways to give an indication of what is happening, but it's not a direct observation of that particular uh, activity. Now, this is just uh, a note in a way, because th th that is certainly not my main problem I have with a lot of uh, the research that is done in that area. But it is important to start from so that we, we, we all are familiar now with how it exactly is working. Though aware of this, often nevertheless a particular conclusion is drawn in terms of the kind of research we need. Granted, it comes with a warning. And again, I will read you a, a, a sentence by Goswani in a 2008 publication. Yet many correlational findings that reach the popular media are given calls on interpretations, he says. But nevertheless, he argues, two sentences before that, as in all scientific inquiry, therefore, experimental design is crucial to how useful the data will be for contributing to research questions. Number three, several philosophers, and we are getting now more to the heart of the matter, several philosophers have pointed to problems with the nature of the concepts that are used. And again, there is a variety of concepts and a variety of uh, possible conceptual problems. For example, they speak of a reductionism or of a confusion of activity and content. Reference is made to Wittgenstein's position concerning the inner and to Ra's notion of category mistake. Moreover, to the issue of underdetermination. So all these conceptual problems are problems in this particular area. I'll give you now some more uh, flesh around these uh, five bones that I've trying to, uh, tried to identify. Purdy and Morrison refer to a remark from Ter Hark. And I quote, measuring pain with a thermometer is to change the very concept of pain, since the uncertainty of the psychological attribute of pain cannot be reduced, end quote. They also refer to a very important publication by Bennett and Hecker from 2003, dealing with uh, neuroscience, who, following the work of the later Wittgenstein, have asked whether we know within single quotation marks now, what it is for a brain to see or hear, for a brain to have experiences, to know or to believe something. End uh, quote. That the brain thinks, believes, is for them the result of a conceptual confusion. Does they point to the separation of the inner and the outer? And I'm quoting now Purdy and Morrison. That separation is by them regarded as a mutant form of Cartesianism where psychological attributes, once ascribed to the mind, Descartes' immaterial res cogitans, are now ascribed unreflectively to the material brain instead." End quote. For them, the brain is not a logically appropriate subject for psychological attributes. The expression the brain sees, 
lacks sense. Bennett and Hacker refer to this as a case of explanatory reductivism. Bennett and Hacker conclude by maintaining that it makes no sense to attribute psychological attributes to either the mind, which is Cartesianism, or to the brain, cognitive neuroscience. Instead, psychological attributes must be ascribed to the whole person, and I quote, who is a psychophysical unity, not a duality of two conjoined substances, a mind and a body, end quote. Far from discrediting neuroscientific research, Bennett and Hacker simply argue that neuroscientists are often guilty of conceptual confusion in ascribing psychological attributes to the physical organ of the brain. Purdy and Morrison therefore conclude, while neuroscience can reveal what is happening in the brain, the imagery is never more than a neural concomitant of that thinking. End quote. And referring to the meaning as use position of the later Wittgenstein, Bennett and Hacker argue that it is a conceptual issue whether psychological states can be ascribed to the brain, and not a question of fact, as one does not have to know anything about what is happening in someone's brain to be able to say of that person that he believes something. Though nothing prevents scientists from using psychological expressions metaphorically, neuroscientists and cognitive scientists typically presuppose that they are using psychological expressions literally. Beckhurst, and I will return to his position later, discusses how good this argument is and raises serious doubts. Following Dennett, he argues that, as Wittgenstein himself well understood, we are unable to state the rules for the use of most expressions, so philosophers only embarrass themselves by pretending to be the self-appointed guardians of the legitimate use of words. As I said, I will return to the issue later, as Beckhurst surprisingly comes to the same conclusions, but for other reasons. A corollary, so I'm still talking about the conceptual confusions and problems with concepts generally in this area. A corollary to this is the dependence of technical concepts on ordinary psychological concepts, which are not concepts of theoretical entities. Here the argument runs as follows. Without our ordinary concepts, the technical concepts from neuroscience would lack meaning. Moreover, though our ordinary concepts are interrelated by way of implication, compatibility and incompatibility, this does not imply that these are theoretical. And again, Bennett and Hacker, for some of you this may be very well known, have uh, devoted a lot of attention to this particular argument. And they argue, of course, that neuroscience, though it can contribute to the explanation of irrational action and forms of incapacitation, it cannot explain normal human behavior. I'm going now... A step further about this conceptual mess that you find in this particular area. So a further step is the use of neuroscience concepts in the area of learning and education. Andrew Davis discusses brain-based learning and points to articles presenting attempts to run together ideas about connectionism in the brain with connectionism at the level of knowledge and learning. There, Two types of connections are systematically conflated. He argue, conflated, he argues, connections of neurophysiological character that obtain in the brain during learning on the one hand, and connections made by learners between new knowledge and resident knowledge 
on the other hand. My fourth comment. Unless the neurological mechanism that lies behind and which is made explicit could be directly influenced, it is not clear what the educational implications are which surpass those already available on the basis of relevant research in, for example, educational psychology. That neuroscience offers a description or even explanation in terms of neurological concepts and theories does not in itself warrant an educational surplus value. This remains to be argued and established. It is possible that the techniques, methods, concepts and theories of psychology will be replaced by those of neuroscience, in which case there could be some gain in our understanding of learning. This presupposes, however, accepting that the object of study of psychology coincides with that studied by neuroscience. And as dealt with in my previous point, this is doubtful. Nevertheless, neuroscientific explanations have a particular seductive character. In a 2008 article uh, in a journal called Neuroeducation, uh, Weisberg, Karl Gutstein, Rausen and Gray discuss an experiment they have set up concerning the seductive allure of neuroscience explanations. Explanations with logically irrelevant neuroscience information had a particularly striking effect on non-experts' judgments of bad explanations. So it's, it's very nice to see that in their own area, they seem to be aware of uh, what is going on. Incidentally, Andrew Davis responding to Schrag recently, that is in the Journal of Philosophy of Education of this year, refers to Schrag, who asserts confidently that talk of brain lesions being more concomitants of an inability to recognize faces is too modest and claims that the relevant neural states of affairs play a causal role in causing the inability. Davis draws attention to the direction of causality. And I quote now, the very fact that certain patients stopped recognizing faces set in motion events that had specific effects on their brains. Such effects might have included the consequence that parts of the brain became atrophied because they were not being used. This matter, end quote, this matter is certainly along the lines of something Aldrich draws attention to, and I quote him as well. Brain structures are changed and adapted with each human activity. For example, in 2000, Eleanor McGuire examined the brains of 16 London taxi drivers via an fMRI scanner and found that the part of the brain responsible for spatial navigation, the right posterior hippocampus, was 7% larger than normal, uh, a significant difference, he says. So the, the point is here that the direction of the causality is not at all clear in such uh, particular cases. My fifth point. Concerning what is frequently argued, that is bringing frameworks together, if this is supposed to be more than the expression of what is always true, it needs, needs to be shown in what way this is helpful. What is argued for is only true if one of these provides information, for example, at an earlier time than the other one. There are examples of this, but they are scarce. I will give you one example uh, that comes from uh, a study by Goswani, and he says, um, 
Neural variables can be used in particular cases to identify those who might be at educational risk. And I quote now Goswani, a child may be at risk because aspects of sensory processing are impaired and biomarkers could show the presence of the processing impairment before any behavioral symptoms have appeared. So this is a case right. where there is a surplus value. But as I said, the examples are very scarce. Finally, and then there is the further step to education. As implicit in, for instance, the idea that improved knowledge about how the brain learns should assist educators in creating optimal learning conditions, not to mention issues concerning desirable outcomes in general educational content and processes. Some scholars realize that such a contribution is limited. Huh? And um, I quote in the paper, but that's not on the handout, uh, Purdy and Morrison who say, the cognitive neuroscientific uh, enterprise in relation to education is therefore necessarily limited. But others, others seem to be inclined to forget that and proclaim the need for such an approach. And I will quote now one sentence from a paper by Goswani, who writes, the evidence from neuroscience is not just interesting scientifically, it enables an evidence base for education in which mechanisms of learning can be precisely understood." End quote. So thus far, I've offered you some characterizations, some comments. I will now, now say something more in general about the attraction of psychology and then return to the attraction of uh, neuroscience. Uh, it is an understatement to claim that psychology nowadays favors a particular methodology and the uses of particular methods. Though it loves to refer to itself as embracing post-positivism, it can be asked whether it really has parted from a logical empiricism characterized by the invariance of perception, meaning, and methodology. Randomized field trials and quasi-experiments are paradigmatically recognized as the preferred way to proceed. It is true that parts of the discipline are no longer wary of the use of qualitative methods and are sometimes even interested in the particular but it can be questioned whether this is anything more than the use of qualitative data within a design that is foremost aimed at explanation, whether causal, quasi-causal or probabilistic, and which is looking for the general, that is, to be able to generalize its insights. The discipline thrives in the present climate of research output that almost exclusively values publications in Web of Knowledge journals. The higher the impact factor of a journal, the more prestige is ascribed to the successful author. Such rankings are also applied to evaluate groups of researchers and indeed whole departments. Research and research opportunities, that is funding, also operate along these lines. It can hardly be denied that in these terms the discipline is flourishing. Moreover, it has penetrated many domains of society and its vocabulary and discourse have become part of our everyday conversations. The number of psychology researchers is growing and so is the number of job opportunities requiring qualifications in psychological research and the areas in which those who have studied psychology are employed. Such a success story is likely to attract researchers working in other areas who gladly take the lead from those who work in a booming field. Educational researchers are no exception to this, but in their case, more needs to be said. 
Psychology not only carries with it the promise that it will deliver insights into human behavior, it is also widely believed that it can help to address the problems human beings are confronted with. Of course, address, though not necessarily excluding problem redefinition, in generally really means solving in the sense of resulting in either the disappearance of these problems through an adequate way of dealing with them in an anticipatory manner, or making the way to handle the problems more manageable. Psychology studies a great variety of processes and is used in different fields or areas. Among these, one also finds education and child rearing. In this context, it tries, for example, to understand how learning takes place and what its mechanisms are, and attempts to identify, for example, how this process can be more effective or more pleasant or run more smoothly. In so far as psychological processes play a role in education, its relevance and attraction in general is straightforward. It should be observed, however, that the study of education involves other theoretical approaches as well, as those of, for example, sociology, ethics and history. As all of these aspects come together at the level of the practitioner and the policymaker in the educational field, all of them should have a place not only in educational research that is intended to inform practitioners and policymakers, but also in the study of education and child rearing as an academic discipline in its own right. There have been many debates about the boundaries between academic disciplines, and often these have not proved to be very helpful. There are, for example, sociological approaches taken by educational researchers and sociologists who focus on educational phenomena. In these cases, it may not be easy or even possible to identify clearly whether a particular example is a case of educational research or rather of sociological research. This is not particularly significant if it simply means that in the context of education and child rearing, many elements have to be taken into account, some of which can also be part of the focus of in or interest of another discipline. But this is not the end of the story. By studying phenomena from different angles, methods are also borrowed from other fields of study. And thus a new debate is given ammunition, which are the proper methods by which to study education. Though it may not be easy to determine all the relevant aspects of an educational problem, in fact opinions differ considerably concerning this, surely all of them have to be given a place in educational research. From this it follows that educational research has to accommodate various methods or methodologies. For some scholars, however, this is a bridge too far. Answering the question why psychology is particularly relevant and attractive for the field of education does, does not require an answer in general terms. To put this differently, it is important to identify what kind of psychological research in terms of content and method is of interest to this field or alternatively, if educational researchers take a special interest in psychology, what is it then more specifically that they are interested in or attracted to? The popularity and presence of psychology in uh, society at large and its success in academia, combined with its general relevance for education and child rearing, has considerably influenced educational research, educational practice and policy. This concerns issues of what should be studied in educational research and the way these issues should be studied. Traditionally, education had deep, had deep, had deep roots in philosophy, religion and more generally in questions of value and what it means to lead a life that is worth living. 
Various societal processes have weakened the importance given to these questions, and from this, labeled by some the erosion of values, a new age has arrived characterized by performativity, output, and efficiency. According to many scholars, the debate is now more about means than it is about ends, where every element has value almost exclusively for its contribution to something else and that other thing for something further, and so on. For some people, the ends themselves are no longer part of a rational debate. They are for them, to put this bluntly, just a matter of opinion or taste. And thus education is seen as having value only in so far as it assists in acquiring a good or a better job as it prepares young people for society. It is not just lifelong learning that proceeds along those lines, but more conventional education is also narrowed down almost exclusively to instrumental learning. Students become clients, or together with others, stakeholders, and the educational system and its institutions are run to a large extent on the basis of their output. What is left is a nostalgic longing for building or edification that should make room for progress or for management to achieve higher levels of schooling in the context of the knowledge economy expressed in the mantra that characterizes the discourse of the European Union and mounting to the aspiration to be the most competitive economy of the world. Toddlers in nursery schools are supposed to acquire certain skills in order to be able to cope with what is taught in primary school. Incidentally, in some schools in Belgium, they even have homework assignments. Pupils in primary school are pressed to learn to read, to write, and to do arithmetic, of course, but the importance given to these is now much more than in the past at the expense of traditional creative activities. And secondary schools prepare for higher education. For example, literature is replaced by communication skills in the context of language studies, which in its turn prepares students for jobs. Again, one may observe that in many cases they do a good job, and incidentally, many of them are psychologists. Compared to 50 years ago, a lot of the elements of educational practice have been questions adjusted or improved, but the present too comes at a price. It may be the case that it has to be left to future generations to determine more fully what is involved, for now it is clear that in a general climate of uncertainty, the emphasis naturally shifts to short-term results in educational research as in other fields of endeavor. Thus there is a tendency to mark out limited areas of investigation that are relatively uncontaminated by independent variables and by broader questions. If this is done in the name of objectivity, it is understandable that researchers want to be objective. But there's always a price to be paid when investigations are pursued within very limited parameters. The result is that a lot of research, for instance in psychology and in many aspects of education and child rearing, address a context, a process, a variable, separated as much as possible from broader questions and deals with only a small or even a minuscule part of what is at stake. Yet clearly addressing an educational problem, be it language learning or bullying, requires a wide spectrum of knowledge. Some of it relies on theoretical insights, while some of it comes from the particularities of the situation. Moreover, as all of that has come together in order to make wise decisions, a lot of contextualization of laws and regularities is required. In deciding what to do, matters cannot be left exclusively to the operation of a deductive normological model.
One can see the attraction of the kind of research that studies in laboratory conditions the relation between independent and dependent variables in the hope of achieving general insights and conclusions with the assistance of statistical reasoning. Yet the truth is that in social sciences, much more than in natural sciences, its laws or regularities can only be applied caeteris paribus, everything being equal. They are in desperate need of contextualization. Attending to matters of meaning and intention from what something means for us as the material out of which our decisions are composed will push us even further away from laws and regularities. In a model where meaning is central, attention must also be paid to the need for a balance between all kinds of things that are important in our life and thus to questions of value. Yet the model is the model of causality and the predictability and elements of manipulation that go with it, which many find irresistible. No wonder educational research has been eager to adopt such a methodology and the methods that go with it. And it comes equally as no surprise that to a large extent similar ends are pursued in the area of education more generally. Let me now return to um, the neuroscience from where I started and to which of course all these qualifications I've given in general of psychology can be applied in one way or another. What goes missing in any third personal physical description of brain states is, David Beckhurst argues, the subjective dimension. All that is observable are the neural correlates of mental activity, not mental activity itself. To this he adds that from a personalist position, beginning from the premise that the human mind is a psychological unity, a person's mental states are not just a ragbag collection of representations. And I quote Beckhurst now. One way to put this argument about psychological unity is to say that brainism, the view that an individual's mental life is constituted by states, events and processes in their brain, and that psychological attributes may legitimately be ascribed to the brain, so Brainism struggles to make sense of the first-person perspective. A person does not typically stand to her own mental states as to objects of observation. End quote. Our observing is always charged with agency, but although a person does not relate to the contents of her mind as to objects of observation, her relation to her own brain states as revealed, say, by MRI imaging, is one of observation. Thus what she observes when she observes events in her own brain can only be brain events correlated with and enabling of her mental life, not her mental life herself. To this personalism and following McDowell, Beckhurst adds a distinctive view of human development. Again, a quote. As a child matures, however, she undergoes a qualitative transformation. She enters a distinctively human, essentially social form of life and acquires distinctively human psychological capacities that enable her to transcend existence into the narrow confines of a biological environment and to hold the world in view. With this, natural scientific modes of explanation are no longer adequate to explain the character of the child's mindedness." End quote. The human mind constantly transcends its own limits. It does not simply apply old techniques to new problems. On the contrary, 
We set ourselves problems precisely to develop the methods to address them, a process that in turn uncovers new questions, creating new problem spaces, demanding further innovation, and so on. To understand this dialectical process, we cannot represent the mind as determined by antecedent conditions. Instead, as McDowell argues, human beings think and act, says Beckhurst, in the light of reasons. And I quote him, the relations in which rational explanation deals are normative in character. When I decide that Jack must believe that Q because he believes A that B and B that P entails Q, I'm not making a causal claim. I am assuming that Jack believes what he ought to believe if he is rational. End quote. These sort of relations are not the sort of relations that are characterized by natural scientific theories. They are different from what goes on in the brain, which is exhaustively open to scientific explanation. Mental states and processes occupy a different logical space, the space of reasons. Human beings inhabit a social world because their world is full of objects created by human beings for human purposes. For Beckhurst, psychological talk represents a fundamentally different discourse from talk of the brain. Obviously, brain science can illuminate learning in the explanation of dysfunction, deficit and disorder, he argues. And um, he's not the only one who points to uh, explaining uh, when things go wrong. For instance, Andrew Davis does that as well. Well, Beckers goes a step further and says brain science can moreover illuminate why someone is especially good at some practice. And he refers, for instance, to speed of thought as an example of causal preconditions of rational powers. But he concludes, as there is as much reason to avoid cross-biological determinism as there is to assure a priori nurturism, there are no a priori, a priori grounds to declare brain science irrelevant to educational issues. But he says what is critical is that interest in the brain should not distract attention from the fact that education is a communicative endeavor, not an engineering problem. Education is not about getting information into students' heads or implanting skills in them. Once again, information and skills are not all that is at issue. Machines may possess those or close surrogates, but machines have no practices and crafts. If Beckhardt's position carries weight, it is doubtful that a lot may be expected from what is frequently argued for in the neuroscience subdiscipline, that is, that a lot may be expected from combining frameworks. Do they make a mountain out of a molehill? The so-called frameworks that have to be brought together are fundamentally different. Moreover, there is something strange going on in the debate about neuroscience and education. The methods that are used are correlational. That is, the tools measure indirectly brain activity. There is conceptual confusion in more than one sense, and yet the proponents do not stop to argue that a lot can be expected from such an approach. So why is it then that neuroscience is so attractive? Interestingly, one may be tempted to find an answer in the discussion the field offers itself when discussing certain so-called neuromyths, of which examples are that only uh, a fraction of one's brain is used, namely 10%, or that people are rather right or left-brained. So the field considers those as neuromyths. There is even a specific label coined for this. The label is neurophilia. 
the appetite for neuroscience. Pasquinelli discusses several issues of neuromyths, the misconceptions about the mind and brain functioning, such as the origin, persistence, and potential side effects in education. There is, according to her in the media, and I quote, the tendency to offer irrelevant information, sensationalism, and the omission of relevant information, end quote. She also refers to the biasing effect of images, and I quote her again, because neuroimages appear as compelling as eyewitness, they are persuasive, end quote. Thus she argues, the ignorance of basic facts about the making of brain images can mislead the layperson into believing that an image of the brain is sufficient to prove the existence of a mental state, an attitude described as neurorealism. End quote. And she refers to the blossoming of projects, reports and studies on the social, political and educational implications of neuroscience, looking in the latter field for guidelines and or easy fixes for education. She talks about the example of brain gym, based on the idea that when different parts of the brain do not work in coordination, learning can be impaired, and argues that though there is no evidence that its exercises are effective, they are globally well received in the domain of education. So, and this is someone from the field of neuroscience, yes? It is therefore really disappointing to find towards the end of her paper as an answer to the question what actions one can take, only that, and I quote, knowledge must be pursued, conveniently disseminated and taught, ending with the mantra, I quote again, from this collaboration, an effective interbreed between science and applicative domains such as education, compelling theories and practices can see the light that are at the same time true of science and meaningful for education. So let me conclude now. Granted, just one more minute, granted neuroscientific studies can eradicate mistaken views about how the brain works. But that does not go very far to justify a legitimate educational interest, not to mention what needs to be done in educational contexts. It does not justify the direction of a lot of educational research not to mention the amount of money that has been made available to those fields. It may be a field that merits interest on its own strengths. Surely, there are so many areas, other areas, which are interesting as well. But it should not be sold as highly relevant for education. Indeed, something very remarkable is going on there. And let me try to rephrase that or label that. Never mind the possible problems. We are aware of that. So let's continue. Business as usual. And therefore the mantra sounds, a lot may be expected from this field. It is easy to see how educators may be tempted to find an easy fix for educational problems, overwhelmed by neurorealism and the aura of doing real science, offering the prestige that goes with it and the so-called expertise demanded for by educators and no less by parents. My arguments have been directed against such a neuromyth, which I offer as a reminder that education, including educational research and the discipline of education, should reclaim its territory. Thank you. <laughs>